I sent you an email that Wednesday uh, you all get moksha. <laughs> but it's only a temporary moksha. So, uh, today we're going to talk about, well, that chapter you're supposed to read in introducing, introducing Hinduism, all, all these different rituals and so on. So one of the first points that was made in the chapter was a, um, a tension, a tension in Vedic Hindu culture between moksha and dharma. And this goes back to the earliest history where uh, the tension between the shramana traditions that wanted to get away and seek liberation and wisdom or just get away from all the complication and oppressive caste system and so on, and as opposed to the people in the cities or the let's say the Orthodox Brahmins that were really into what they called Dharma, meaning all these Vedic rituals and so on. And of course the caste system was a kind of Dharma also. Anyway, in order to discuss this, I want to put it within a, uh, well, another thing mentioned in the chapter, these four, what are called Purusharthas, or four purposes or goals or important issues in human life. And uh, as I said earlier in the course, and I'll say it again, um, I don't think this is really just a Hindu system. I mean, in India, they have their own way of talking about it, but I think you can easily find it everywhere throughout all different cultures. And so we'll go over this one more time. Dharma is used in the sense of virtue or duty to do the right thing. Um, your caste obligations, if you're a Brahmin or a Kshatriya or a Vaishya Sudra, if you're married or you're a celibate student or if you're renunciate, these are all dharmas. So. It's very common to speak of Brahmana Dharma, Kshatriya Dharma, or Grihasta, householder Dharma, and so on. Stri Dharma, duties for women, Raja Dharma, duties for kings, and so on. So all these different social duties are called Dharma. So in Mimamsa, for example, when they begin the Mimamsa Sutra by saying, Atato Dharma Jigyasa, now we should inquire into Dharma. And ultimately, the highest Dharma turns out to be a sacrifice. And so depending on your place in the social system, if you're a brahmana, you may perform the sacrifice, chant the mantras, light the fire, and so on, and receive the, the gifts. And if, uh, if you're a kshatriya, then you, may, you would be expected to patronize the sacrifice. You pay for it. And perhaps you become the yajamana. You become the, as the patron, you get a special box seat, you know, right over the dugout. I mean, the yajamana gets a special seat in the sacrifice where he sits with his wife, so if you're rich, if you're a king, and so on, then you pay for it. If you're a Vaisha, also you're paying taxes, you're helping to support it and pay for it. Maybe you provide different kinds of um, foodstuffs or, or special garments for the priests. And the sudras, the workers, they have to, perhaps, they might plow the sacrificial ground. Because before the sacrifice, you have to um, prepare the ground. It has to be done in a special way, it's highly ritualized. So everyone's participating. So in a sense, the Imams of people are saying that uh, whatever your caste is, whatever your ashram is in terms of being celibate or being married or whatever, it all culminates in these sacrifices, which are in a sense the ultimate dharma. And, of course, a lot of people didn't agree with that. In any case, so that's dharma. Dharma means your duty and also means a practice of virtue because there's this assumption which at times becomes a little puzzling, that if you just do your dharma, if everyone just does their duty, everybody will be happy because all these dharmas are somehow virtuous. 
and you become virtuous, you become auspicious by doing your duty, the people start to wonder, like, well, some of these things don't seem to be that intuitive. Like, for example, there was a quote that uh, a man uh, in, in the practice of, or pursuit of Dharma shouldn't marry a woman with red hair. So those who have red hair, they just have to <laughs> learn to live, I guess, with your... That fact that you can't marry an Orthodox Brahmin. Anyway... <laughs> So some of these things you wonder, like, is this really virtuous? What has this got to do with virtue? So, anyway, we'll talk more about this later. But dharma means virtue or your duty. And then there's artha. Uh, artha can mean money or self-interest. So, or, or just the purpose. So artha has a sense of you're making money, uh, you're being virtuous, but also you have certain interests in life. Like it's in your interest, if you're a king, to maintain your power. Therefore, the, the text, the scripture, which sort of the Machiavelli of ancient India, it's Chanakya, his book on how a king can maintain power and make sure his enemies don't become too strong and so on. It's called the Artha Shastra, the Artha Shastra, the interest scripture. So Artha can be money in general means pursuing your interests, whether it's power, money, or peace, or whatever, just pursuing your interests. You're not simply doing your duty blindly, like, okay, this is my duty, I'll just do it or I should be virtuous for, this, for virtue's sake, but I'm actually consciously pursuing my own, you could even say selfish interest. That's artha. And then kama means that let's say you successfully pursued your interest and you have some money or you have some social position, now you can satisfy your senses. You can get that house on the hill you always wanted and that chrome-plated carriage or, you know, just, just whatever things you wanted to buy. You can, or, you know, if you, so in other words, you can now satisfy your desires. And, and that also refers, of course, comma, this book called Kama to your bodily desires. It includes satisfying sex desire, satisfying the desire to eat good food, to be respected, just satisfying your desires, satisfying your bodily needs and desires. That's Kama. And then uh, Moksha, the idea being that once you've done this whole program, you're a good person, you did your duty, you became prosperous, you used your prosperity to satisfy your desires, and now you've realized the whole program is kind of limited. After all, it's just the material world. And at that point, then you pursue moksha, which literally means release or liberation or salvation. So this is, and, and there's some discussion in our book, uh, Professor Rodriguez tries to correlate this with the four ashrams. Like, for example, dharma is something brahmacharis do, and artha is something householders do, I mean, celibate students and householders, retirement people. And that correlation is a little forced. It's not exactly like that. It's just like one of those clever little correlations that someone came up with. But in fact, if you're a, a celibate student, let's say you're just, you just do your duty because you're a student. And so, you know, it's like do this, do that. And so you just do your duty. But at the same time, uh, so a student may have to focus on dharma. But then householders not only pursue their interests, they have to do dharma. There is grihasta dharma, householder dharma. They have many duties. There are duties in regard to, let's say, guests that come to your home, how you treat a guest. That's a dharma. Giving charity in general, uh, perform, participating in and patronizing certain kinds of sacrifices. There are all kinds of duties for householders. And householders also are obviously, to some extent, satisfying their desires assuming you, you know, like your wife or your husband, then they're also satisfying their desires. And even in householder life, 
it's called an ashram. Uh, you know what I'm referring to, these ashrams? You know, student life, and then married life, and then with a man and woman, their kids are grown, they start to retire, they go to the forest, want to press and ultimately renunciation. But they're all called ashramas. And ashrama means a place where you're cultivating some higher values. And so in household life also, one is supposed to do certain things leading to liberation. Now, in the, in the very technical, orthodox, ritualistic subculture, it may not be as clear, but certainly in, you could say, mainstream Hinduism and in the devotional movements, let's say, for example, hearing the Mahabharata or the Ramayana and so on, uh, the idea is that, that it's actually li- liberating because uh, there are stories about incarnations, avatars, and there are many, many statements in these books that, if, that one who simply hears this will be liberated because you're hearing, hearing about God coming into the world. So, in the more, you could say, spiritually concerned aspects of Hinduism, such as uh, the devotional movements and so on, even as a householder, you really have to do all four of these. And that's a complete human life. It's not that you can wait until... Now, if you think that liberation is only for people living alone in the forest, then yeah, if you're, if you're married, you've got kids, and you've got a house, and you've got a job and everything, you can't run off to the forest. You can't run off to the forest. So the, but the idea that liberation is only for those who go to the forest and give up family life is exactly what Krishna is exploding in the Bhagavad Gita. Because Arjuna, that was his idea. Well, Krishna, you know, I think, I think I'm out of here right now. So Arjuna wanted to give up his duty. He was the warrior. His duty was to stay in the battlefield. But as we know, he didn't want to fight. So he wanted to give all that up. In fact, he says in the Gita that Shayan Poksham Aikshma Vihaloka, it's better to live by begging, I'll become a bhikshu, I'll become a mendicant, which is better than living at the, in this way at the cost of the lives of others. So Krishna's, one of Krishna's main points in the Gita over and over and over again is that liberation is not only for those who renounce family life and renounce normal life. That within your duty, you can get the highest liberation. That's perhaps the central point of the whole Bhagavad Gita. So the idea that moksha is only for the latter stage of life is kind of out of sync with the mainstream ideas of Hinduism. Any questions on that? So, uh, samskara. If you, if you actually read the chapter, if you, were, if you performed your dharma and read the chapter, then you may notice the word samskara, uh, sam, the prefix sam, which actually is cognate with the Greek su, as the Greeks apparently pronounced it, as in synthesis, synthesis, the together thesis. And so it means the same thing, uh, together. So it means together or completely or perfectly. And then kara, uh, from the Sanskrit root kri, which is cognate with English words like create, and increase, and so on, means making or doing. So making perfectly, or, or, or putting it all together, making completely, refining. And that's and the S is there just for uh, pronunciation. Oh, you wonder why people didn't just say sankara, but anyway, they didn't. So sanskara, they put an S in, just because they considered it euphonic, it sounds better. So sanskara, and actually it's the same word as Sanskrit. Sanskrit language, it's the same word, sanskrita. 
So Sanskrit literally means a language which has undergone sanskara, a language which has been refined. And uh, so sanskara means a, a ceremony that, that refines a person, brings a person to a higher state of civilization or consciousness. That's the sanskaras. And uh, many of them were mentioned in the book. A very common one is Upanayana, which literally, the Upa, the Upa in Upa, actually, I'm going to indulge myself a little more linguistics. The, uh, the Upa, that's funny, if you know Latin American, let's just say Upa, which means like, uh-oh. That's how you say uh-oh in Latin America, Upa. Anyway, so Upa in Sanskrit, though, means near. And it's actually the Greek, the Greeks uh, didn't pronounce an H at the beginning of the word, like our honor. Uh, like what, what, how many hours, and so it's the Greek hypo. And this Greek Y is actually like a French or German U, umlaut U, upo. So this word is actually upo, it's a Sanskrit upa. And uh, if you think of the, the hypo, it means like not quite, like hypothermic, not enough heat. It doesn't quite get to the point, hypothermic or something like that. So upa, and so in that sense, in Sanskrit, it means like approaching something, you're not there though. That's okay, go ahead. Chair deserves it. So, so hypo, this is hypo means not up, fully up to the point, but near, like Upanishad, the word Upanishad, sitting near, like you're not sitting on top of your guru, you're just near him. And so, and nayana means bringing, so Upanayana literally means bringing someone near, like bringing someone to the point. And uh, it describes the giving of the sacred thread, the thread that's worn around the, the chest, and uh, it signifies that one is twice born, Dwija, but it's only given to the three higher castes. Brahman, Chaturis, and Vaishya, didn't get the thread. They had to, uh, they were threadless in that system. But the idea was that the three higher castes had access to certain, certain types of Vedic rituals and certain types of Vedic learning, and the Shudras were excluded from that. So, um, so ultimately it became a type of, like a social status thing. I mean, if you think of the concept of dwija, twice born, dwi is just like dual English. So dwija, twice born, it's like, what does it mean to be twice born? Yeah. I mean, if you think about it, now on in the, in the one hand, if you were born and no one ever taught you anything, you never heard human language, you'd be quite a little animal. So in one sense, just being civilized, just getting some kind of education gives you a life beyond the mere animal birth that we all take. Where we're just like these things that are hungry and thirsty and, and, and or get tired and so on. So there's a sense in which just being civilized to the extent modern, the modern world actually does civilize us, that is in a sense a second birth. But the real sense of it, ultimately from the spiritual point of view, bless you, my God, let's be the chocolate. So, the, but the real sense of second birth was that you get a spiritual life. The point here is that there's always this tension, I think, in any culture, whether it's Christian culture, Jewish culture, Hindu culture, Muslim culture, between a real serious spiritual interpretation of things and sort of almost a mundane religious interpretation, which is filled with superstitions and traditions. We've always done it this way and a real serious concern for social status and all that. And so in Hinduism, as in every religious culture, you find these, this tension. So even in the book, you'll find, to some extent, 
Upanayana, getting this twice-born thing, the sacred thread. For some people, it just means you're a higher-class person. But ultimately, it means that you actually have a spiritual life. You get initiated into a spiritual life. And just as your material life is based on the body, so if you're male or female, or in a particular social class or economic class, or if you're a certain age, that's your life. Like, I'm so many years old, I'm this gender, that nationality, I come from this country, this family, or whatever. That's all based on your body. And then the point of the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna's explaining the real self is not the body. The real self is eternal. So when you want a life based on the real self, according to this picture, that's the rebirth. That's the second birth. It's not simply that you become, you get a new life as a higher class person in a material society. And so seeing this Ubanayana as a status thing, social status, is really, a, in a, from a spiritual point of view, a degradation of a spiritual culture. Using caste just kind of to, it's almost like, you know, like when you buy a fancy car, an expensive house, or you have an impressive degree, or work for a big company, or whatever, have a trophy wife or a trophy husband. And, and so to, to interpret all these things like the uh, Ubanayana and all these things as just giving you some kind of status is, uh, from the spiritual point of view, simply a, a degradation of the culture as opposed to what it's really about. And you find analogies in every religious culture in the world, really. And there's always these tensions. So uh, Regarding this tension between Dharma and Moksha, which, which is talked about in the book, in the beginning of that chapter, chapter 4, I think, uh, there are always both things. If you look, for example, at uh, Israel around the, time of the, uh, around the time of Jesus, there's a group of people who, very much like the Shramanas, thought that uh, even though Jerusalem is the city of David, and Jerusalem is always sort of like a, a metaphor, if you, if you know your biblical studies, for the chosen people themselves, for it's, it's a city of God, and so on. And so there's a group of people around the time of Jesus that said, we're out of here. It's become so corrupt, all these rituals, uh, they've, people have forgotten the point, they've lost the spiritual connection, and so we're, we're heading for the hills. Well, literally, they're headed for the Dead Sea. But that's, I mean, there weren't too many places to head, and Israel could serve a small country. But they went out to the wilderness, they formed their own communities, spiritual communities, and, and wrote their own books. And these, of course, are the Essenes, the people that wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls. And so the reason I mention this is, or uh, if you look at the history of Christian monasticism, if you look at the history of Christian monasticism, and monastic traditions always have these boom-bust cycles, because like, you get a bunch of very sincere people. That, if, you, if you ever drive through Italy, uh, the old monasteries, man, they've got some of the best real estate on earth because as you, as you drive around Italy, which is sort of, it's sort of like California, it's mountainous and, and, and coast and everything, and so all these mountaintops and hilltops with these super views and everything, they have monasteries. Whereas in America you find hotels and mansions, but there they have monasteries. So, and so if you look at the history of monasticism, uh, you get, I think, often very sincere people, shramanas, Christian shramanas, that wanted to get away from the cities and the royal patronage because if you're in the city, the king will build you a cathedral, but then you've got to really dance to the music of the king. So they wanted to get away, form their own monastery, have their own practices. But what happened? The people, people looking up at this monastery, they say, hey, they're the real Christians. 
or they're the real Vedic people, or they're the real, or the Sufis, they're the real Muslims, whatever. The people in general, the families, they say, they're very impressed, these people are very sincere, they're, they're austere, they're actually walking the talk and so on, and people want to honor, the, honor these monks, they start giving them gifts, and what happens? The monastery starts to become rich. The monastery becomes rich, and uh, then they become corrupted, and then a reformer comes along and says, hey, let's get back to our roots. This was supposed to be about simple, austere, real spiritual life. And there's a big monastic reform. And what happens? The reform is so great, and the people, the new monks are so sincere, after a while they start getting gifts again. And I've actually noticed this. When you study the history of religions, they definitely go through boom-bust cycles. And you find the same thing in India. So this Shramana thing, it's not that at a, there was a time when everyone was in the towns and doing rituals, and then people went to the forest. There's always these tensions. You can see it throughout the history of religions. It, it's, just, it's just always there. Another thing I want to say about, again, the universality of this, take the history of America, especially, let's say, the, the first uh, European settlements in, in New England which were somewhat extraordinary. You had people who actually came to set up religious communities. At, at the old entrance to Harvard, for example, they have this plaque, which goes back hundreds of years, with a quotation from uh, the journal. It, it was a, the journal of the Massachusetts Bay Colony. And they found it Harvard. They found it Harvard, I think, something like 25, 20 years after the Mayflower landed or something. So one of the first things they wanted to do was to set up a university. And the reason was, as they wrote, because they... They, they were very concerned that, that when they were dead in God, they wanted to leave a learned clergy for the people. They felt the people needed a learned clergy. In other words, a clergy could actually explain things properly so the people wouldn't become fanatical or be misled or, or go to hell because they misinterpreted the Bible or something. So, that, so there was a tremendous concern with virtue. You all, I'm sure, learned in school that's how Rhode Island was founded because someone disagreed. They were... They were so they're really concerned about religion and virtue and uh, these very sort of austere people. So what happened? America had this, and even in 1800, these great religious awakenings. So there was this real concern with religion, this real concern with virtue. And America became very prosperous. Artha. So you have Dharma, then you have Artha. And then America went into some, a somewhat hedonistic phase, as we know. Again, at, at all times in histories, you can find some people doing everything. But in terms of the zeitgeist, you know, the German word zeitgeist, the spirit of the times, you can talk about a general spirit of the times. And so then there's commas, and, and then there are periodic spiritual revivals, people become concerned with salvation and so on. And so it kind of goes around and around. So again, these are, or take the Romans. I mean, think of the early Roman Republic, which is always described as having these Republican virtues, not in the modern sense of uh, American political parties. But there was a time when, if you study Roman history, if you study Roman history, there was a time when uh, there was a real enthusiasm for virtue. I, just one simple example that comes to mind. I mean, the Roman Senate. And, and then, uh, if you know, you probably know Hannibal invaded Rome at a certain point with his elephants, and that was like a real shocker. No one, anyway, so Hannibal invaded Rome, uh, or the Italian peninsula, and... Uh, he couldn't really beat the Romans, but they couldn't really get rid of him because he just was camping out at different parts of Italy. And it's, it's sort of like, he, 
after a while, it became a big nuisance. They just couldn't get rid of them. And so, anyway, they sent a big Roman army to deal with Hannibal, and the Roman army suffered the greatest defeat in the history of Rome. It was an absolute disaster. It was the biggest military defeat in the history of Rome. And, uh, and so when the general who led the force came back to the Roman Senate, uh, just, just to give you a comparison, in the, uh, the Athenians had a very different view because there was one Greek admiral that lost a very important naval battle and they executed him. They executed him. So in Greece, or at least in Athens, I mean, it was sort of a different approach. So to compare these two things, they executed this admiral because he lost an important battle. When this Roman general came back to the Roman Senate after the biggest, most humiliating defeat in the history of their civilization, they gave him a standing ovation. They gave him a standing ovation. I mean, I mean, there was a real, there was a time, I'm not, I'm not trying to paint it as Camelot, like it was a utopia on earth. But there was a time when Rome really had this sense of virtue and they really had values and principles. Then, of course, it became very successful. The Romans became very, very successful. They became very wealthy. Uh, certain people became very greedy. It became sort of a self-indulgent society and ultimately collapsed. And, and even if you, if you study the history of Roman civilization, at the time when things were starting to get a little too greedy and a little too out of control and decadent, you find the rise of transcendental movements, people concerned with transcending the world. In other words, moksha. I mean, you think of thinkers like Plotinus. And, uh, and even, so, so again, what I'm trying to say is, this is not just some cute little Hindu scheme. I think it's just the way that people in ancient India talked about certain real aspects of just human life. And so, we can understand the way Indians talk about it, but also it has a real universality. Any questions on that? Any questions on Hannibal? No. So, the samskaras, Vidyaramba, when you, you know, first, I guess that's kindergarten. Then, uh, Vedaramba, when you go to, to the guru and start your Vedic studies. To show you how, another point to go back for a moment, sort of the super, is there a word, superficializing? Or the, sort of the, tr almost the trivializing of what was originally, you could say, a, a, a spiritual culture. There's a quote from the book, which I brought in. The Gayatri, that's the mantra, the Gayatri mantra is from the Rig Veda, and when one is given an Upanayana, that thread, then you're given this Gayatri mantra, and then you chant it three times a day, at the three junctures of day, at, at dawn, when it's not night and not day, it's like in the middle, like you look out the window, and you can't figure out if it's night or day, then you chant the Gayatri, that's a, that's a juncture. And then at noon, it's not, Morning, it's not afternoon, right in the middle. And then in the afternoon, twilight, you know, the twilight zone when everything gets really weird. When you look out at the sky and it's not day and not night, then you chant again. So it's at those three times. And, and, and throughout world religions, you do something at those three times. Those three times always recognize the special times. But anyway, so uh, that's the Gayatri, this mantra from the Rig Veda. And here's a quote from our book. The Gayatri is believed to be the condensed essence of the Vedas. And so even if the initiate, the kid, does not undertake further Vedic study, the periodic repetition of this verse, which is only like, you know, like a line, is regarded as sufficient. I thought that was absurd. 
I mean, personally, now revealing my own violent tendencies. I, I thought it was really crazy because if the word Veda means knowledge, and you have this incredibly impressive array of literatures, I mean, from many different schools in India, including, including even Buddhism, but even just within Virginia, within the Vedic side, the Puranas, the Itihasas, all this, uh, the Upanishads, even the Greek Veda itself, which has so many beautiful, powerful messages. And to say that, well, you don't need to study anything, just chant this three times a day, you know, which takes about, literally about five seconds, and that'll be the trick. Because it's the condensed essence. It's almost like if you take the blue pill, you will understand all the Vedas. <laughs> so, and the result of this, of course, is that, that, that you could just, to, to find, let's say, a Hindu who really has a serious, profound knowledge of the Vedic scriptures is not an easy thing. Just like you can find people in every religion who don't really have a serious, in-depth knowledge of their text. So, I thought that thing, you can just chant this and don't just study anything, uh, says something about where the culture was going at a certain point. And that's a general thing that a lot of what's in this chapter that I'm sure you all read and nearly memorized, a lot of the things in this chapter are more modern Hindu rituals. Even some of them are older, but they're not necessarily things that are coming from ancient texts. Some of them are, some of them aren't. They're coming from texts also that are called a certain uh, genre of literature, sutra literature, uh, called, for example, the word griha in Sanskrit means, means a home or house. And grihasta, the one who stands at home and lives at home is a householder. So there's the word grihya, which means domestic. It's, you know, like domicile, domestic. And then sutra, you know, thread, it's, it's like a type of, you know, sort of condensed literature. So there are Griya Sutras, which give all kinds of details, give all kinds of details, ritual details, and, and uh, dharmas, and so on. And these texts are themselves, in a sense, technically not revealed scriptures. They're just different. And say the Upanayana, that thread, is not even in the older Griya Sutras. It comes in the later Griya Sutras, which makes you wonder if people even did that at an earlier time. And, and they also have another genre of literature called Dharma Sutras, uh, which give all kinds of technical rules, for example, who can marry whom. Like if you're this caste, you can marry that caste, but if, if a Brahmin woman marries a Kshatriya man, there's a certain name for it. They call this uh, Anuloma and Pratiloma, sort of like with the grain and against the grain. So depending on what caste you are, who you marry, it's this kind of marriage, and, and you can only do certain kinds of duties. And they're very elaborate, it's very technical. And this stuff is not really, I mean, one thing is interesting, the Upanishads kind of tend to ignore this, and the Bhagavad Gita absolutely ignores all of this. The Bhagavad Gita absolutely, intentionally ignores all of this. Just clears it off the deck. And the last thing Krishna says, if you want to, if you haven't sold your Bhagavad Gita yet to one of the local bookstores, if you go back to uh, text 1866, which is one of the most famous verses in the Gita, sort of like the climax of the Bhagavad Gita, where Krishna says, well, the Sanskrit is, Sarvatharman Parityajamamikamsaranabraja, that giving up all dharmas, you should come to me alone for shelter. In other words, in terms of what's going to really make you safe and happy and liberate you and all that, Krishna says, 
you really simply have to come to God. You can give up all these other dharmas, so all these technical things and rituals and so on. That was, in a sense, the great revolution of the bhakti movements, the great uh, liberation of the bhakti movements that you can do away with a lot of this, this very, very technical, caste-conscious stuff and focus on your spirituality, focus on devotion, trying to love God. And uh, so it's getting back to sort of... You know, if you look at the Sufi movement in Islam, which is not an exact analogy, but Sufis, of course, were the devotional wing. And uh, they had a lot in common with the Bhakti movements when Islam came to India. We'll be talking more about the Islamic invasion of India. But the re- I mean, I think it's really fair to say, and it's often said, that the Sufis were the, the bhakti movement within Islam. And until they were violently persecuted, they, they also did a lot of good. So, um, another remark in the book that I wanted to um, comment on. Marriage marks a girl's entrance into spiritual life. In other words, until a girl's married, she's sort of like a spiritual zero. And uh, that was in the book. And again, you know, there may be some technical Orthodox Brahmins that believe that or teach that or something, but in the real world, even in real world Hinduism, young girls since the time, you know, they hear stories from their parents and grandparents about Ram, about Krishna. They take part in things. They take part in kirtans. We have talked about kirtan. It's kind of fashionable nowadays, kirtan. You know, people get together and they chant and sing and so on with instruments. So in the real world, young girls from their birth and young boys actually take part in all kinds of activities, which you would have to call spiritual. And so the idea that a girl's spiritual life doesn't begin until she's married is, uh, I think, is taking very, very small group of Orthodox people too seriously. It's just not what happens in the real world in people's lives. And it's not that, you know, don't tell the girl about Rama, or don't tell the girl about Shiva, don't tell her about, you know, don't let her do a kirtan, she's not married. I mean, it's, it's just not at all like that. So again, these are technical orthodox, orthodox things that really have very little effect in, on real life for, for a lot of people. Now, another thing is I already mentioned that be very careful girls are bred here. Actually, I don't know where this stuff comes from, but it's coming from... Don't take it personally. We still like you. So, it's, uh, it's coming from a text called the Manu Smriti, which is notoriously corrupt. And uh, so, it's also remarkable they had red, redheads in uh, ancient India. But, um, yeah, so things like that, I think, are an example of something which is, uh, gets very irrational and shows, well, what can happen to traditions. Then, uh, another point in the book that I wanted to very humbly challenge, here's a quote, more often than not, talking about marriage, different kinds of marriage, more often than not, such love-based attractions are portrayed as having unpleasant results for all concerned. Not really. Not really. I think uh, there, I just, off the top of my head, came up with lots of examples of love-based attractions and marriages that you know, were really successful. And uh, one is Krishna. 
Krishna, for example, had... Uh, of course, Krishna's special case. He expanded himself in many different forms. He married many women, but each one had their own Krishna, which is another very interesting story. So, same Krishna, but... I mean, anyway, you guys don't try this at home. So... But the idea is that uh, there, there are many, many cases in the life of Krishna where women really fell in love with Krishna because, again, he was all, he's always described as being almost in, unimaginably good-looking. And so there were, there were many, many cases of women. In fact, probably all the women that married Krishna in his different forms fell in love with him, explicitly fell in love with him, and those marriages were all very successful. Arjuna to whom Krishna speaks in the Bhagavad Gita, fell in love with Krishna's sister, Subhadra, a very beautiful girl, Krishna's own sister. They very much fell in love with each other. I'll quickly tell you that story. Uh, Krishna was living in Dwarka. It's very far out. Krishna, at a certain point, wanted to build a special city for his people, and so he actually just made, he created this island in the ocean, he just sort of made this island float in the water, and um, they lived there offshore in western India, offshore Gujarat, and... Uh, one time Arjuna came to visit Krishna, and Arjuna, he saw Krishna's sister, it was love at first sight, he immediately fell in love with her, and uh, so what he did was, with Krishna's permission, because Krishna knew that there was some social pressure for his sister to marry someone else, so Arjuna disguised himself as a renunciate, and renounced people were given great respect as sannyasi, so in, in the disguise of a renounced person, he was allowed to speak to the women. So I thought, well, he's a saint, you know, he's sort of a spaced out saint, he even talks to the girls. <laughs> so anyway, he associated with Krishna's sister, and eventually they decided to be loved. They, um, and she, which gives you a different picture of the role of women in this culture, uh, back, back then, Subhadra would happen to be expert at driving a war chariot. So this image of women that just, you know, this very humble Hindu bride. Subhadra was actually actually driving a war chariot. And so she drove the chariot. Arjuna fired the arrow. They sort of fought their way out of the city. <laughs> it's a very interesting story. With Krishna's approval, of course, Krishna had helped to engineer it. And then Krishna's brother followed up. Then in, in the Senate, or in the assembly, the royal assembly of, of the city, there was all this, like, shouting, like, no one can take one of our women like that. You know, they didn't go through the proper channels, and so they wanted to go and fight. And so Krishna just said, like, come on, chill everybody. And so Krishna, <laughs> Krishna's, because they were complaining because, you know, Arjun hadn't paid a dowry, or, or, or they hadn't given a gift. They hadn't given, they should have given, because the dowries weren't always the women. See, when you actually look at the histories, it's not these little horrible pictures you sometimes get. For, and, and Krishna actually said, this is the Mahabharata, Krishna actually said that women are not property. Women are not property. They're not something you can buy and sell. It's not that if Arjuna gives us a gift, then we're going to sell the woman to her. And Krishna said, they're in love. And uh, it's a great thing for us to have them married. And, and everyone accepted it. And they became a great couple. And they, and they, and they lived happily. And that was absolutely a love marriage. And that was Arjuna from the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna's own sister. And I mean, Sitan Ram, even though at the end there's a separation, but they were very much in love, and they're held up as the ideal couple. And one of the reasons they're held up as an ideal couple, and they are, Sita Ram are the ideal couple, is because they were so deeply in love with each other. So, um, yeah, love. 
I mean, the tension between, let's say, like if you look, if you know you're Jane Austen, then you know that, let's say, a few hundred years ago in Europe, I'm a big Jane Austen fan, by the way. <laughs> so anyway, um, if you know Jane Austen, you know that, say, 200 years ago in Europe, there was a real tension between what they called prudential marriages. Like, listen, Elizabeth, I don't care if you, if you love him or not. He comes from a good family, he's got a good, good income, we can't support you. And so that's called a prudential marriage. You know, it's prudent, it's prudent to marry this person. And there's marriage for love. In, in one of the great romantic novels of the English language, Pride and Prejudice, that's the whole tension. The tension between marriage for prudential reasons and marriage for love. And you have the same tension in India. So, I mean, India, as every other country and culture, is unique and special. But at the same time, they're human beings, and there are certain tensions and things that you find everywhere. So the tension between a prudential marriage and a marriage for love is found in every culture, and it existed, it existed in the Veda culture. For example, Rukmini, this beautiful princess Rukmini, was supposed to marry uh, Shishupala, who was a real creep. If, if you know the history, he was like just like the Maha creep, and so, and it, I mean it was it was a prudential marriage in the sense that you know Shishupala was the Chedi Raj, he was the king of, of Chedi, and everything. But Rukmini thought, yuck, and she wanted to marry Krishna, and so she actually sent a message to Krishna, a clandestine message to Krishna through a Brahmin messenger, and said, uh, of course you're free to do what you want, but please come and kidnap me. Uh, I'm in love with you, and I'd be very grateful if you would just come. And, and so Krishna did. He rode all night, and she was walking out for her marriage with this. I mean, if, if you know the history, you wouldn't object to me calling Shishupala a creep. He really was. And so Krishna just rides up, takes Rukmini on his chariot. She's in ecstasy, and they ride. Krishna fights his way out, and, uh, and, they, and they're completely in love, and they live happily ever after. So there's, there's plenty of romance in this ancient culture. It's not just that, you know, daddy decides you're going to marry this toothless wonder. <laughs> Another thing, and I have to read this from the book, which actually I thought was almost, almost comical. And uh, I'm sure Professor Rodriguez is a great guy, and I don't mean any offense to him, but... It is kind of comical. That is, typically Hindus tend to give girls names that end in a long E, like I, which is pronounced E or A, like Radha or Savitri, and that end in a long I or A and denote femininity, while the boys' names denote masculinity and tend to end in short vowels or consonants. I was thinking, oh my God. <laughs> Sanskrit is a gendered language. It's like La Casa. I mean, it's, it's like in English. You don't name your... You don't name your son uh, Betty, <laughs> and you don't, name, you don't name your, you know, your daughter Stephen. <laughs> and so it turns out that in Sanskrit, words that end in long i and a are usually are feminine words. All he's saying is that, for some curious reason, in India, ancient India, girls got girls' names and boys got boys' names. That's amazing. <laughs> But you have to go to college to, uh, to learn things like that. So, the 
There's other things like on page 98, a Hindu wife is expected to be modest in public, perhaps covering her head. A lot of people feel that was Muslim influence, the idea of veiling and covering, and to some extent it's a Hindu custom. All, a lot of these Hindu customs are kind of dissolving with the urbanization, modernization, industrialization, and that's going on in India now. So you see, for example, in big, like say Bombay, highly educated people in Bombay or Delhi or Madra, or sorry, Chennai, Mumbai, oh my God. <laughs> anyway, in all these cities, or, or Bangalore, sort of, you know, Silicon Plateau, whatever they call it, Silicon Deccan. So the more educated people are, the more modern they are, and there's more and more educated modern people, the more they tend to do things the modern way. I mean, it's, it's not the whole country is converted to modernism, but it's, it's definitely changing among certain classes. And so if you look at the ancient texts, Mahabharata, the Bhagavad Purana, or even the Upanishads, you never hear stories about women covering their head. I've never in my life come across a text in these older books where a woman covers her head. And so it, it is, or it has been traditionally a custom in India, but it's just not there in the ancient texts. So that's an example of foreign, I would say, foreign influence. But it becomes, so Hindu doesn't always mean Vedic. Oftentimes it doesn't mean Vedic. It's a conglomeration of Muslim influence, even Western influence. For example, when we talk later in the semester, the world still exists, we talk about the Christian influence in India with the Europeans. Uh, monotheism, because the Christians' big thing was, you know, we have monotheism, you have polytheism. And you have all these Hindu reformers resp responding, like, like say, Dainanda Saraswati and others, saying that no, the, the ancient Vedas really were monotheistic and a new emphasis on monotheism. So what we call Hinduism today is really uh, the result of all these historical processes. And to some extent, there's a lot of anachronisms here because in this particular chapter, the author tends to say Hindus do this and Hindus do that. But it's coming from many different historical periods, different communities, from different influences, some of them outside of India. And it's just sort of all being lumped together as Hindu practices. But it's coming from many different places. Uh, widows are inauspicious. Again, not always. Kunti was a widow, the mother of the Pandavas. She was a great lady. She's one of the great ladies of Indian history, Kunti. I've never, and I've read a lot about her, and if you read the original text of Arta, no one ever calls her inauspicious. Similarly, when, when uh, the uh, grandfather of the Pandavas, uh, Vichitravirya, when he passed away and left two childless uh, queens, there was no question they were inauspicious. There's a whole discussion, like, what do we do? There's no heir to the throne, the dynasty's in danger, how do we deal with this? But there's never a word about their being, about their being inauspicious. So again, the idea that widows are inauspicious, there are, you know, there are some Hindu ideas that don't really go back that far. They don't have deep roots in the Vedic culture. Uh, Hindu writings mostly disregard women. I mean, the Puranas, Nitihas, which really are popular Hindus, that's really what everyone's into. There are many, many stories about women. I don't want to just be an apologist for the tradition. There are problems, but there are lots and lots of great women in the tradition. And, and you know, they may not participate always in very technical, ritual things. But again, people don't care that much about that anyway, except for certain like marriages, funerals, you know, you have to sort of get a rent appointment. I mean, you have to bring in someone that's going to, you know, do the technical thing for you. But in terms of the real life, what it really feels like to, to be emotionally involved, 
with Hinduism, uh, the women are an important part. Anyway, uh, Wednesday, uh, so we'll see you next Monday.